Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter number 11. The book of 1 Samuel and chapter number 11. We are in the beginning of our series of the life and ministry of David. And as we're dividing this up into two parts, the first part really puts a concentration on the comparison between David and King Saul. David and King Saul, that each one of them <coughs> had every opportunity to succeed. Both of them had every opportunity to be used of the Lord. But one went wrong and one uh, went forward. One was considered the man after God's own heart. The other was considered a man after the people's own heart. And what made the difference? And the whole book of 1 Samuel really does a comparison that if you really want to see what made David special, we see someone who was placed in the same circumstances, had the same opportunities, had the same abilities, had the same th everything, and see one followed the Lord and one did not. And so the book of 1 Samuel is a great case study to see what made the difference. And we want to find out what made the difference because we want to have a heart that is pleasing to the Lord. We want to have a heart that, <coughs> that God can bless. And so with that being said, let's find our way to the book of 1 Samuel chapter number 11. The book of 1 Samuel chapter number 11, and if you don't mind, notice with me in verse number 1. 1 Samuel chapter number 11, and in verse number 1, the word of God says this. And Nasha the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with thee, with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in all the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coast of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so let it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out with one consent. And when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow by that time the sun will be hot, 
and ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it unto the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do unto us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they that remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together." And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that saith, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not be a man put forth to death this day. For today the Lord hath brought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And in this account here, we see a very important place mentioned that's mentioned several times of Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead. Uh, <coughs> Jabesh is the city. Gilead is pretty much the region. It'd almost be like saying Green Bay, Wisconsin. Jabesh Gilead. And the overall idea of this theme here is showing the victory of Jabesh Gilead. And so with the Lord's help, I'd like to highlight here the victory of Jabesh Gilead. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again as we come up to you. And as we come to you tonight and open up the word of God, we hit a bit of a narrative here and we're asking that you would allow us to discern, to dig, to find the great diamonds that you have hidden in here, that we could see that you're a great God and how you love us. But we would also take the warning that we see from this passage here and from the remaining uh, part of the book of Samuel and that we would take heart that we would examine ourselves, that we would make sure that we are staying as close to you as possible, lest we fall. Lord, again, I need your help physically, spiritually, mentally. I just need you. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you. I ask that you do your own work. Fill me with your precious spirit. You do a wonderful work. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what has happened is that the people of Israel at the time of the end of the judges went up to Samuel the prophet, the last judge, and said, listen, we are tired of trying to find God's will for ourselves. We want to be just like everyone else. We believe the government has the answer, so we want a king. And we want the king to fight our battles for us. We want the king to take care of us. We want the king to give us protection. And so in that course Samuel went to God and God said listen they're not rejecting you they're rejecting me and this is a big deal but give them a king warn them tell them what's going to happen but give them a king and the people said we want a king anyways and so Samuel promised to get him a king well it was at this time that God had prepared a king by the name of Saul and that Saul uh, was prepared of God. We saw God's unconscious preparation of putting him at the right space at the right time, putting him at the place where he was prepared. And he wasn't seeking to be king, but God put him in that position nonetheless. And now, King Saul is officially the king, but nothing really for a king to do. They're not used to having a king. It wasn't like they had a big bureaucracy. He didn't have a lot of paperwork to sign or a lot of things to fix. And so he went home. 
And while he was at home, um, some of the land, still dealing with the idea of the judges, started to come under attack by some of the neighbors. Notice, if you don't mind, as we examine this text, the first thing we want to show you is the threat upon Jabesh Gilead. The threat upon Jabesh Gilead. Notice with me in verse number 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Now Jabesh Gilead as I said at the onset is a city and a region. The region of Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan River from the rest of where uh, <coughs> Israel is at. So it's on the Transjordan side. And that Jabesh is a specific city inside of Gilead. Now the Ammonites were the neighbors of Israel on that side of the Jordan River right to the south. And so they marched north, came to Jabesh Gilead, and they surrounded the town. Now the town knew that they were all by themselves. They knew that there wasn't a standing army. The Israelites didn't have an army to go fight. They knew that there wasn't much hope. And so with this... Uh, foreign uh, country surrounding their gates. Pick it up with me in verse 1 again. Then Nahash the Ammonite came and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. Now basically what they're doing is they're saying we surrender. Hey, tell us the terms. You've got to surround it. We can't fight against you. We can't withhold. Give us your terms for surrender. So Nahash, notice in verse 2, And Nahash the Ammonite said unto them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. So the men of Jabesh Gilead, surrounded by an army, said, All right, we'll surrender. Tell us your terms for surrender. And they said, All right, go ahead, you surrender. And the only way we'll accept your surrender is if we could line you all up, take a spoon, pluck out your right eye. They're going to lay your eyeballs down in a big row and say, ha ha, their God couldn't protect them. That's pretty bad, isn't it? How would you like those surrendering terms? You could surrender. We'll take your surrender gladly if we could pluck out your right eye. Every single one of you. Men, women, and children, line them up. Well, they said, give us seven days to think about this. Notice as it says in verse 3. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers to the, all the coast of Israel and say, If there be no man to save us, we'll come up to thee. Basically said, All right, uh, before we take that offer, that's a nice offer and everything, but uh, give us seven days and let us uh, call for help and call a lifeline and see if someone could give us the right answer here, see if someone could figure something out. And seven days, uh, we'll surrender. I mean, that's some pretty desperate times now, huh? Don't you think you might actually be praying? You got seven days before someone's going to pluck out your eye? Seven days before everyone's got to surrender and line up and they have to take it? Well, they got a, a big dilemma here. Pretty big issue. Well, what they do is they send messengers. Well, it just so happens that King Saul has already been anointed king. He's gone back home and so, hey, you just asked for a king to fight your battles. Where are you going to send the messengers? Well, let's go see if this big boy can uh, follow up. Let's see if this guy can actually protect us or not. So we start off with the threat of Jabesh Gilead, a pretty dire threat. 
Notice, if you don't mind, the second thing, the call to defend Jabesh Gilead. The call to defend Jabesh Gilead. So what happens is they send the messengers. Notice with me in verse 4. Then came the messengers to Gibeah. Now, this is a different town. This is located in the country of Benjamin. And this is where King Saul made his home. This is his personal home. This is where he came from. That after he was king, he said, well, there's nothing for me to do. I'm king. I, I'm going home. There's nothing to do. And so he goes to Gibeah. And those messengers came to Gibeah and told the tidings of the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. After all, that's some pretty bad news. If you heard that a town nearby that belonged to part of your country had to surrender their eyeballs, you probably wouldn't be very happy either. Especially since he said, we're going to show the reproach of Israel. We're going to show that their God can't protect them at all. That's a pretty big deal. A pretty big deal. Now, one thing I want to put in emphasis, remember, the book of 1 Samuel is a contrast between King Saul and future King David. And that both of them are going to start with God's blessing. Both of them never chose to be king. Both of them were pulled up by God and chosen by God. Both of them were anointed by Samuel. Both of them had the same opportunities. Let's see how King Saul, his very first act as king... Let's see some traits of where he's at right now. And it's going to be an interesting study, if you don't mind. First of all, I want you to notice as we cover, we're seeing King Saul here. Notice his humility. Notice his humility. Verse number five. And behold, Saul came out after the herd of the field. Where was Saul at? He was out tending the field. You know, he became king and he said, there's nothing to do. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to go work. You know, he was king. In your eyes, do you really see the king out there uh, milking cows? Do you see the king out there slopping the pigs? Well, they didn't have the pigs, but do you see him feeding the chickens? Do you see him cleaning out the stalls? Well, this is where Saul was at. I'm king, nothing for me to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to work. He didn't have the big head right here. He didn't say, well, I'm king now. Everyone has to do my work for me. When they came to find him, where was he at? He was working. He was working. He was working at home and he was doing his own work. Notice again in verse 5. And behold, Saul came in after the herd of the field. And Saul said, what aileth the people that they weep? A second thing that we see is not only his humility, but we also see his concern for his neighbors. His concern for his neighbors. He comes back in and says, why are all the people crying? Then they told him of the things of Jabesh Gilead. You see, Saul, when he first started, he was still pretty humble. When he first started, he cared about others and how they were faring. What was going on in their lives. When they were weeping, he wanted to know why they were weeping. There was a concern that he had. Sounds like he's starting off pretty good so far. Notice as it goes on. And verse number six, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul when he heard those things and his anger was kindled greatly. A third thing we see about Saul as we're seeing the beginning of his reign is his zeal for the safety and honor of Israel. Now, remember what was just told. Hey, if we don't surrender our town or if we surrender our town, if we don't get help, they're going to pluck out our right eyes. 
And then they're going to lay him down as a reproach saying, look, your God couldn't protect you. Well, notice what it said about Saul. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul. God filled him. God came upon him. And Saul, when he heard these things, those tidings, his anger was kindled greatly. Now, I want to remind you that you can be angry and sin not. And there are some times that God gives us a holy anger. Now, how we respond to that is one thing. But there are some things that we should be upset about. When people start messing with our Bible, that's something to be upset about. When people start messing with salvation, that's something to be upset about. There are certain things we should be upset. We need to respond correctly. But there should be some things that we're upset about. When a child is being abused and neglected, that should be something we should be upset about. There are certain things. It is not wrong to be angry. It is wrong to respond in anger in an incorrect way. Now here, when someone said, you know what? Your God can't help you. There should be some people that get upset about that. Listen here. You're talking about my Jesus. You're talking about my God. And listen here. He's not going to take that. We're going to surrender ourselves. And we're going to watch God show these guys who is who. And so we start off. Saul's starting off pretty good, isn't he? We see he started off humble. He started off with a concern for others. He started off having a zeal and safety for Israel and the name of God. Notice something else as we go up to verse 7. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces. So basically, he took some oxen, probably his own oxen, and he cut them in pieces. Then he sent messengers with those pieces all throughout Israel and sent them all throughout the coast of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, Whosoever cometh forth not after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Notice what happens here. His authority... He, excuse me, he exerted. He put his authority. His authority was correct. He didn't overextend his bounds. He went within his bounds. He's the king. But notice some things as we go into here. We know that every biblical leader must know the bounds that God gives them and the authority. He wasn't unreasonable and it wasn't beyond the scope. Notice how he addressed this in verse 7. It says, whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel. You see, it wasn't all about himself. He's saying, I have authorization by the prophet. We talk to the preacher and the preacher and the kings agree. This needs to be taken care of. See, Saul wasn't making decisions by himself. He had talked to Samuel about this. And then notice, as he's still talking about his authority, that it wasn't just about himself. But he didn't threaten the people themselves without outside of bounds. Whosoever cometh not after Saul and oxen, so shall it be done to his oxen. He didn't threaten to kill the people. Listen here, you obey me or you're going to get it. He said, listen, if you're not going to obey, we're going to take it out of your oxen. Meaning he didn't threaten the lives of the people. But he did say there's going to be consequences for your action. You understand there are times that a biblical leader must show proper authority. That if a, a biblical leader doesn't show authority and let the people get away with stuff, then he doesn't have the authority. But he doesn't need to go outside of bounds than the bounds that God has granted him. He didn't say, I'm going to kill you. But he said, there's going to be consequences if you don't obey. 
You need to obey. This is something it's not. Well, if I feel like it. Well, if it's convenient to me. No, this is something you need to do. Get it done now. And he wasn't outside of his bounds. And he wasn't outside of his authority. And he wasn't outside of his demeanor when he gave this authority. He's still responding correctly within everything that is done. Now, notice at the end of verse 7. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout the coast of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out with one consent. The people did come out because of the fear of the Lord. And they came out with one consent, meaning one mind saying, we're going to obey the leader. This is who God sent us. We're going to obey him. Why did they, were they willing to obey in one consent? Because he showed proper authority. There was a time for him to be the authority. And he acted and said, this needs to be done. Not and, if, or but. It needs to be done. And so he's doing everything correctly so far. And the people are responding well because he is the leader he is supposed to be at the moment. Notice something else about Saul and his leadership here in verses number 8 and 9. And when he numbered them in Bezrek, the children of Israel were 300,000. That's a lot of people that answered the call, didn't it? And the men of Judah, 30,000. And they came to the messengers that came and said unto the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time, the sun will be hot, and ye shall have your help. And the messengers came back and showed it to the men of Jabesh Gilead, and they were glad. The last thing we want to see in this part here is his wisdom in the approaching battle. He gathered everybody, and by the way, it wasn't over a course of weeks. It was a course of a couple days. You need to get here. You need to get here now. We have to defend our territory. Get here. Then they lined up 300,000 plus people. And he took time to number them. He said, I need to know who I have. Then let's get a wise strategy. And they came up with a strategy of how they were going to do things. He was being wise as a leader with his resources and planning for the war. There's many leaders who may try to respond properly, but then they blow it on the battlefield because of foolish practices. He didn't. He used wisdom in his role as king, commander-in-chief. And again, we're seeing he's showing himself in a wise manner. He's preparing himself. He tells the men, go tell Jabesh Gilead that tomorrow when the sun's hot, remember, not everybody had watches, so they had to just say, hey, when it gets hot out, that's when you can expect us. And you go tell them that you're going to have help tomorrow. So they're waiting just a little bit away. They had made it planned. They, he gave his word, and he's going to keep his word. So we start off by seeing the dilemma in Jabesh Gilead. Then after this, we see the call to defend Jabesh Gilead, where Saul himself, he's responding wisely. He's carrying himself well. He's going with the Spirit of God. He's leading the people correctly. Then we come to this, the crowning victory at Jabesh Gilead. Notice with me in verse 10. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow... We, now they're again, they're talking to their captives, to the people, the army outside. They're talking to the Ammonites, Nabish the Ammonite. And the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good to you. So here's the plan. That the men of Jabesh are going to go, all right, we surrender. And the purpose of it is they're telling them that we're going to surrender tomorrow at this time. So all of the army will be gathered up. 
Now, if you know anything about warfare, is that you have the defenders who are inside of the city. They have some walls. They have some protection. The army outside of the city doesn't have fortifications. They're living in tents. They didn't have time to build castles or houses or anything. They're out in tents. So they are defenseless if another army comes to hit them. They don't have anywhere to hide. They don't have anywhere to flee to. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead said, tomorrow we'll surrender. And they did it for the purpose so all the army would be alert outside. They wouldn't be somewhere else. They'd all be outside waiting to receive the surrender. And then Saul and his army are going to come when they're all in one place and smash them. Isn't that pretty smart planning? Absolutely. Notice as it goes on. And verse 11. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the host in the morning and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. Here it's saying that Saul came and destroyed him so much that you couldn't find two Ammonites that were standing next to each other. They all scattered. They didn't even have buddies next to each other. They were just running and trying to save themselves. They just smashed the opposition. Well, here's Saul's first turn at the bat. How do you think he did? He knocked it out of the park. You know, it's so much so that when Saul dies later on and the, and the enemy, the Philistines, have his body, guess which people come and take his body back? The men of Jabesh Gilead. They were always thankful for Saul because of this victory because he went and saved them. This is going to pay dividends later on, this wise act. Forty years later in Saul's reign, it's going to come back and they're going to honor Saul because of this day. Now notice as the cleanup hits. Verse 12. And the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Remember in the last chapter when, when Saul became king, you had a group of people that said, We're not going to serve him. Who put him to be king? We're not going to obey him. And remember Saul, he heard him, but he didn't do anything about it. Well, other people heard them too. Now that Saul knocked it out of the park, Saul showed himself to be a good king, at least at this time here. The men are like, who was it that said Saul was going to be a bad king? Who was it that said they're not going to obey Saul? You tell us who they are. We'll kill them for, for not trusting the king. Well, notice how Saul reacts to this. Verse number 13. And Saul said, there shall not be a man put to death this day. For today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Here Saul says, no, no, no one needs to die. They're entitled to their own opinion. Because the one thing that's true, God brought the victory, not me. That's pretty good. Saul recognized that it was God that brought the victory. It wasn't him. He was just an instrument. It was God that brought the victory. <laughs> Verse 14. Then, Samuel said, uh, then said, said Samuel to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Verse 14, what happens? They go to the city of Gilgal and they make that the new capital of Israel. Now that it's a monarchy now, they're going to have a capital. The capital is going to be in Gilgal. Sounds like a good question later on. What is the capital of Israel under Saul's reign? Gilgal. Verse 15, and the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offering before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What a great story. 
It's doing well. Saul becomes king, shows humility, shows wisdom, shows righteous indignation, dealing with uh, when people are challenging Lord. He's doing well. He knocks it off the park. Well, if Saul is doing well, what happened? What happened? Where did it all go wrong? Now, all that was introduction. Let me get the message here. Because remember, the book of 1 Samuel is a comparison between two people. It is a comparison between King Saul and a comparison between the future King David. Remember that both of them were set up with equal opportunities. Both of them were chosen by God to be king. Both of them were anointed by Samuel to be king. Both of them started off working in the fields. Both of them had every opportunity. Both of them had access to God's spirit. Both of them had been filled with God's spirit. Both of them had the same opportunities. What happened then? Where did they go? Where did Saul go wrong? Well, that's a good question because it's something that we need to know. You understand there are people that are more spiritual than you or I that have fallen. There are people that are more spiritual, more dedicated to the Lord that failed in their Christian life. What happened to them? What happens to us? Does it mean that these people aren't really saved? No, they are saved. Then what happened? Can it be that a saved person can actually fall away? Can a saved person stop serving God? The answer is yes. You say, well, we got to start at the beginning. Was Saul saved? He was. Later on, right the day before Saul's death, he had the witch of Endor. He met with her and Samuel popped up. And Samuel said, guess what? Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Well, where was Samuel at? Was he in hell? He was not. And so he said, tomorrow, you're going to be with me. That's, that's evidence from a prophet that said that Saul was going to heaven. That Saul was going to paradise at that time. That Saul was, had accepted God and his promises for salvation, for justification. He believed on God. Well, if he was saved, what happened? If he was saved, where did he go wrong? Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to show you some things from the Word of God to give us a warning about this. And I want you to understand, if you have never written this statement down, if you don't have it, put it somewhere, underline it, bold it, highlight it. And I want you to have this statement. Anyone is capable of anything when their flesh is in charge. Anyone is capable of anything when their flesh is in charge. This is why it's so important to be reading our Bible, to be dead to self, to be walking in the Spirit, to be praying. Because all you need is one day in the flesh and you could do so much damage. Anyone is capable of anything at any time. You say, I don't know if that's true. Have you seen your own life? You give you a day or two in the flesh. Aren't you capable of about anything at any time? Absolutely. You are capable of anything at any time 
When we are not walking in the spirit, when our flesh is in control. You say, can you prove it from the Bible? May I? Let's look at a couple different passages, just working our way and just showing some things. I'm not going to do a whole study on it, but I'm going to show you uh, about five or so passages so you could see from the Bible for yourself the warnings that God gives to us, not to lost people, but to us to guard our own selves. Notice with me in the book of Proverbs chapter 16. The book of Proverbs chapter 16. Anybody is capable of anything at any time when we are in the flesh. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16 in verse 18 is a verse that you need to have highlighted within your Bible. Preferably with something that stands out that says, warning, warning, danger, danger. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 16 and verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You know what happens? Pride. What is pride? It's a false view of oneself. You know what pride is? I'll never fall. You got to be careful. You know any one of us are capable of anything at any time? If you ever get to the point that says, I'll always serve Jesus, you're in danger. I always do what's right. You're in danger. You're in danger. You understand? I can't serve Christ. God can serve Christ through me. I can't do it. Left to my own devices, I will fail. Now, when I say I, I'm not meaning collective. I'm saying me as a pastor. Left to my own devices, I will mess up and I will fail. My flesh is wicked. And it's still strong. As much as I like to mortify the flesh. As like the Apostle Paul, I die daily. You let the one day you don't, you don't die. And you're capable of anything. Let me tell you how it works. One day, not walking in the spirit. One day in the flesh, you commit a sin. And then guess what? You're ashamed of that sin, so you hide it. And you lie. Now you've added another sin. Now you've got to keep lying about the sin, and then you find out you like that sin, so you do that sin again. Because you find out, hey, God didn't send a lightning bolt when I did that sin. Maybe I could get away with it. And it turns into what the Bible calls a presumptuous sin. What is a presumptuous sin? A presumptuous sin is a sin where we presume upon God's grace. That I can do this sin and God won't punish me for it. You understand the Bible talks about in the book of Galatians, Be not deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There is a payday someday. But the law of reaping and sowing is that you always reap the same thing you sowed. But you also reap later than what you sowed. And you reap more than what you sowed. It has a maturation, maturity period. It may not be instant, but it will come. But our pride says we got away with it once. And I enjoyed that sin. I can't tell anyone that I enjoyed the sin, but I enjoyed that sin. And so you do it again. 
But you don't want anyone to know, so you lie some more. And it becomes a besetting sin in your life that doesn't get rid of. And you still look good on the outside. And you say, I've got this. I've got it under control. It doesn't have a hold of me. I could quit at any time. And that builds a stronghold. And the whole time your pride is saying, I've got sin under control. When it's actually the other way, sin's got control of you. Pride cometh before instruction. You know, before someone has a public fall, it starts with a private failing. Before someone ever has a public fall, it starts with a private failing. It starts with them stop reading their Bible. Stop praying. Oh, they still show up to church. They still smile, carry their Bible. But it's been such a long time since they've been in the Bible. May I also add that that awful doctrine, teaching, that a chapter a day keeps the devil away is not true. You need to be digesting God's word. If all you're getting is one chapter a day, you are a weak, pathetic Christian. I'm not being mean. I'm trying to be help. Weak and pathetic. And if you skip Bible readings pretty often, you are anemic and dying on the vine because you are not abiding in Christ. You are ready for a fall. We have to run to the scriptures and say, I need the Bible. I need the Bible. I need the Bible. I need Jesus because I cannot live this life on my own. Pride cometh before instruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. What's a haughty spirit? I've got this. Carries the same idea of pride. I've got this. I've got it under control. I'm not going to mess up. Let me tell you, your flesh is capable of anything at any time. Well, that's one passage. What else does the Bible have to say about this subject? Well, let us look. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the New Testament. Just to show that I'm not just talking about Old Testament stuff. The book of Galatians, chapter number 6. The book of Galatians, chapter number 6. <laughs> Again, we're trying to trace in our minds what happened to Saul. What happened? He started off good. He started off humble. He started off right. He started off looking for the things of God. He started off inquiring about the preacher and going alongside the preacher. He went off and started off so well. What happened to him? Well, before there was a public fall, there was a private failing. And it started with pride. And you'll see that in the upcoming chapters. The pride of Saul. I've got this handled. I got this. I'm good enough. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good believer. Those are a dangerous spot to believe in. Because once you start thinking you are a great Christian, you can look forward to God knocking you off that pedestal. Dangerous ground. Paul says, I die daily. Paul says, I struggle in this. This is the Apostle Paul. I'm struggling. I have to work to be right with God. Let me tell you, nobody follows God by accident. It is a purposeful, intentional decision. You don't wake up one morning and say, Woohoo! Hey, me and God, we're getting along great. I didn't do anything. I'm just close to God. You have to choose to follow after Him. Notice, if you don't mind, as I stalled for enough time for you to find Galatians chapter 6. Notice with me Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brethren... If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye that are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, 
considering thyself, lest thy also be tempted. Here's a warning, Galatians chapter 6. If you find a guy who falls, a guy who makes a mistake, his public life just collapsed in. Now remember, before you have a public fall, it starts with a private failing. Anyone's capable of anything at any time. Now normally what happens is that in a church even like this, people like to line up. Oh, that guy made a mistake. All right, everyone kick, get your kicks in. Everyone elbow drop. Everyone go ahead and get your licks in. But the Bible says, ye that are spiritual, you who think you're spiritual, prove it. How do you prove it? You restore such a one. You reach down and you pick him up and say, I know you messed up, but let's go on. Let's start from where we are and let's move forward. Come on, let's go. If you're spiritual, you'll pick them up. Why? Notice, it even says how to restore them. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. What is meekness? It's strength under control. It carries the idea that we're not going to beat them up and condemn them. Why? Why? Considering thyself, lest thy also be tempted. I heard preachers say this. Except for the grace of God... There go I. Because we're all capable of anything at any time. You understand? This is a humbling thing we're talking about here. None of you are strong enough to live the Christian life on your own. None of you are spiritual enough to go through the Christian life without Christ. None of you have the strength to live the Christian life without dying to self and saying, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. You understand, we must have Christ. We must have him. We need him. And anytime we get to the place where we're so spiritual, so haughty, so prideful, look at that man. I knew he couldn't do it. <laughs> With the idea that we've got everything all together. Be careful. Be careful lest you be tempted. What does that mean? It means if you think you're spiritual, you still need to be careful. Because anyone is capable of anything at any time. And the only hope that we have is to be dead to self. To be walking in the spirit. To be abiding in Christ. That is our only hope. You say, but I'm a Christian. Yes, we're talking to Christians. We're not talking to unsaved people. We're talking to Christians. There's not a single Christian that I know that is strong enough to live the Christian life by themselves. They must have Jesus. Again, I can't tell you how many of my heroes in the faith that I found out messed up later in life. And my jaw dropped and I said, really? I, I mean, isn't this just a bad rumor? It happened and it broke my heart. People that I looked up to, people that I trusted, people I knew personally. Anyone is capable of anything at any time. And before you have a public fall, it starts with a private and we need to be careful, the Bible says, that if we do see someone fall, that we're not getting in line and kicking them because we need to be careful of ourselves lest we're also tempted. What else does the Bible have to say? Well, notice with me in the book of James. Now, again, I'm not hitting every passage, but I'm just highlighting some mountaintops of what the Bible has to say concerning this. And again, we're not talking about lost people. We're talking about born again, saved, Bible-believing. I'm going to heaven... Uh, People who've been saved in the blood, washed in the blood, who, who 
not have never been in church, but people have been in church. People who have preached. People who taught Sunday school classes who fall. Why? Because anyone is capable of anything at any time. Notice, if you don't mind, James chapter 1. Notice as the Bible actually describes how this sin gets in our life. James chapter 1 and verse 13. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So the Bible's very clear that when you, <coughs> when you have that sin before your face, well, God put that in my face. I just couldn't help myself. He did not. He did not. You know what the actual, the opposite is actually taught. The book of uh, um, Hosea chapter 2 speaks about this. Oftentimes, God will put obstacles in our way. And we have to jump over them to get to sin. God tries to put barriers because of his goodness. Isn't it amazing? We all have sin. And I don't want you to name your sin. But you think about that sin that you've done in your life. Isn't it true that God put barriers up in your life? And you had to go around them to get to the sin? If we'd be honest, we'd recognize that, yeah, God was good. He tried to stop us. He tried to put things in our way. And we went to it anyways. So temptation of sin is not from God. He tried to keep us away from it. We just said, hey, how you doing? See you later. I got to go do this. We just bypassed him. But notice as it goes on, verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Drawn away from where? Drawn away from God. By his own lust and enticed. And when the lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. How does this work? It starts with a thought. You think about it. You know, before a man commits adultery, it starts off with a thought. He daydreams about it. He thinks about it. He lets it mull over in his mind and said, what if? What if? And as it mulls over, he says, you know what? I think I'd like that. I think I could get away with that. And the sin, when it is grown, or that, that thought, when it is conceived, will turn to sin. And the wages of sin is death. There's always consequences. But that's where it starts with. That's why we have to guard our thought life. You understand, before anyone has a public fall it starts with a private failing. This is, your thought life's pretty private, right? Nobody knows what you're thinking. You could look pretty good on the outside, but it's the inside. You're no longer abiding in Christ. You're carrying on with what you've been taught. This is how I'm supposed to stand, how I'm supposed to look, how I'm supposed to speak. But your thought life can be so rotten and filthy. It could be going after sin. I haven't committed a sin, but it's in your mind. And if you think about it long enough, you will act on it. Because we are capable of anything at any time. You see how dangerous sin is? It could snatch any one of us, including me. Just given the chance of temptation. Just given the chance. Any time that we are in the flesh, we are in a dangerous spot. And before we ever have a public fall... It starts with a private failing. It starts with a thought. And you entertain the thought. You know, the Bible actually talks about in the book of Corinthians how you're supposed to take the thought, take every thought captive, to encapsulate it, to wrinkle it up, throw it away. 
you have that thought. <laughs> you know, I, I can't speak for ladies, but I can speak for men. You know, you go to a grocery store, there's pornography everywhere. It's called the magazine rack. You know, the first glance is not sin, but the second glance is. And the third glance is. It starts with a thought. And you allow that thought to dwell. And if you allow that thought to dwell long enough, you will act on the sin. And that sin will have consequences. May I show you another passage? The book of 1 John chapter number 2. The book of 1 John chapter 2. Now again, where did this all come from? Well, we're trying to explain where did Saul go wrong? Saul started off right and he had every opportunity that David did to do what was right. What was the difference? Well, it started off with a private failing that led to a public fall. It started off with pride. I've got this. I can get away with it. There's not going to be any consequences. It's going to be fine. I don't need God. I got this myself. And he fell. And at the end, he was so far away from God that God wouldn't speak to him anymore. He had to go search out witches to find some sort of spiritual answer because God would not speak to him because he was so far away. Where did it start from? Well, it wasn't because Saul was always that away. It's because pride cometh before destruction and a haughty spirit come for a fall. It started to the idea that any man is capable of anything at any time when he's in the flesh. It started with a thought that was conceived and carried out to sin. Notice in the book of 1 John, as we explain more, where do these thoughts come from? Where does this lust? We talked about lust. When it is conceived, bringeth forth sin. Notice with me 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Notice with me in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. What is in the world? The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life is not of the Father, but is in the world. Here we understand that the lust of the flesh is something that we desire to have. The lust of the eye is something you see and it's something you covet. The pride of life is something you want to be. You know, all of those things start with a thought. It starts with that Burger King commercial with a flame-broiled Whopper. It's not God's will for you to have it right there, but you start craving it. I'm being facetious to get, prove a point. It's for the, the lust of the eyes, it's something you see. And you think about it, right? And you think about it some more until you act on it. And then what happens is that that sin will turn into death. You go to the lust of the flesh. You know your flesh has cravings. Something I want. You know there are some things that are not sinful for you to have. But you shouldn't have them because your flesh wants them. And you know that you shouldn't feed your flesh. There are some times that you need to just say no it's not sinful. But you choose not to have because it feeds your flesh. And it starts off with an idea. I want that. Oh it'd be better if I had that. And that idea gets mulled over. And then turns into sin. And then that sin leads to death. Before someone has a public fall. It starts with a private failing. 
the pride of life, the desire to be something. I want people to recognize how great and wonderful I am. I want people to pat me on the back and say, good job. I want people to recognize I'm the greatest in what I do. Sure, you're that way too. You want people to recognize you. I'm the best vacuum person in all the church. Nobody vacuums like me. Everyone, recognize how great I am. Please touch me. Nate, thank you. <laughs> now, some people are more egomaniacs than others, but don't we have enough healthy ego that we want people to recognize how great we are? And it starts off with a thought. But you recognize we're not great. We're wicked, filthy, lousy, horrible sinners. That Christ is our only hope. You understand? It all comes to the idea we are capable of anything at any time. Whenever our flesh is in control. What is our hope? That we're dead to self and walking in the spirit. That is why the greatest thing you could do on a daily basis is to read the word of God for yourself. And if you are not in the word of God, you are giving in to temptation and flesh all the time. There's no asterisk under that. That is a true statement. If you are not having healthy doses of the Bible on a regular basis, you are a fleshly carnal Christian and are capable of anything at any time. If you're a person who does not have a well-developed prayer life where you're not just asking things from God, but talking with God, let me tell you, you are capable of anything at any time because it's the walk with Christ. It's us abiding in Christ that keeps us safe. We're capable of anything at any time. You know, probably if there was one important point that you could get driven home as a Christian is that you are capable of anything. And that should scare you to death. I tell you, I'm standing as the pastor of a church. I have pastored for over 10 years. I have been in the ministry preaching for over 20. And I am scared to death that I am capable of anything at any time. Because I know my flesh. I know what it's capable of. I need to die daily. I need to be walking in the spirit. And before I ever have a public fall, I'm going to tell you where it's going to begin. It starts with a private failing. Now, I pray that I never fall. I pray that I stay close with Christ. But I want to let you know, pull the curtain back. What was the problem? The problem wasn't it didn't start off because, oh, she was just so pretty I couldn't resist. It started because I was neglecting my Bible reading. It started because I was neglecting my prayer life. It was because I was carrying on a facade. And I let my insides get control. Instead of Christ have control. You understand how it works? Let me tell you. You need to guard your own self. I'm trying to help you now. I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to say. How do we turn to a David? having a heart after God rather than a King Saul having a heart after everybody else, the rest of the people. With your private walk with God, you've got to guard it. You've got to protect it. That's why I ask you, you say, Pastor, how, what is the best way we could pray for you? To pray for me to be in my Bible. You understand, God, Satan wants me to fall. 
And the way that he's going to get me to fall is he's going to take away the Bible reading first. So the greatest way you could help protect your pastor is to pray for him to be in his Bible every day. To guard it. Now, if your pastor needs prayer to be in his Bible every day, what about you? Don't you think that probably you need to be praying for yourself? That you guard your own walk with God? Because any one of us is capable of anything at any time. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.